What lies at the intersection of science, art, language, and athleticism? At the confluence of Lao and American culture, Grisada Panusit Unsuri, or Binley, as he's known, is an accomplished breakdancer, award-winning poet, artist, and physicist. From his early days in Laos to the Las Vegas stage, Binley is writing his story with every dance move, photograph, and engineering breakthrough. It's a story being retold through poetry, preserved for future generations as art, and most importantly, inspiring a new generation to do the same. What's going on, man? How you doing? Long time we'll oh, see. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been man, the long, long I've been following you, man. You, you've been listening. You've been doing like fucking really well. Like, uh, you know, like real good. So kind of wanted uh, to be on and just kind of have you share, you know, share your, your adventure, your journey with us, you know? Oh yeah. Thanks, man. It's been, yeah. um, it's been tough for sure, but tough for everybody. I, you know yeah yeah given the past few years and yeah well we, we met what in 2014 right was it 2014 2015 2014 i think 2014 eight, or, fifth, eight, or 15 probably like eight eight plus years ago do they, do they still have that do they still do that every year or so no um they stopped after seattle Okay, in John, 2017. John, okay, John, we're talking about the Lao American uh, Writers Poet Summit that we met at. Uh, I, was, I was asking if we're still yeah. doing, doing that. Yeah, you're telling me that you guys met there. That That's great. And the funny thing about this, Trisada, um, not sure exactly where you lived in San Diego, but I saw you graduated from East Lake High, and I lived like a couple blocks from there for about nine years back in the 2000s. So we were probably just about neighbors. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, a, what brought you out here? I'm in Chicago now. Um, I'm a native of California. So what brought me out here, Cosway is the better question, but came out here for work. Been here since 2014. So mm, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. And uh, we had another guest on, a pickleball guy, Matthew Nola, who used to live in Otay Ranch. So right there, too, in the same vicinity over there. So three of us were nice. all probably neighbors, probably ran in, into each other at you know, Lao New Year or whatever, <laughs> or at the grocery store. But I, yeah, it had been Lao New Year for sure. <laughs> that, yeah, but that one was huge. San Diego, Co., there's so many people, thousands oh, yeah. of people. I, we had to, yeah, we had to have at least like uh, four just to just to meet like the needs of uh, the community. <laughs> yeah, each temple, would like, like Watt Skyline would have their own, and then like they'd have the big like San Diego White community one at a park mm -hmm. or at that big place um, over there off Euclid that I don't know if they still do it there, but it was a big dirt lot once and they held it in this rocky dirt. We could barely walk yep. one year. Then they like fixed it all up nice the next year. Yeah, yeah that was uh, the, uh, we stopped doing that and then we moved it back to the temple. So, okay. Okay. Well, good. Well, Hey man, it's an honor to have you on. You've done a lot of, a lot of cool stuff. We're really honored to to talk to you tonight. So Co's gonna kick off the show here and we'll get rolling. Hey, hey man, real quick, do you like being called Binley or Crisada? Is there a preference? Uh no, no preference. I go by I go by everything. So Binley, Crisada, Lancer. Okay. It's my dance name. There's a lot of different uh nicknames. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. Okay, cool, cool. All right, man. Uh John, you're gonna uh let's get started. Yep, let's roll. Okay. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of C4 Podcast, Southeast Asian Athlete Achievement Through Adversity. My name is Coach Andetka. I'm here with my co-host, John Messina. Uh, if you haven't already, please uh, like the C4 Podcast page, our uh, Lao American Sports Hall of Fame page. And we're also on Instagram, Lao American Sports. Um, we have an amazing guest today, uh, a kind of a... You know, not an athlete in the traditional sense, but definitely an artist, right? So without further ado, I am going to have John introduce him to you guys. Yeah, so today we have Krisada Panusit Hunsuri. Um, welcome to the show. Goes by many names. Binley Lancer is your dance name. 
We're really honored to have you on. Um, before we jump into the interview, though, we need to give a few shout outs. Um, just want to thank everybody from Wisconsin who's been following the show. We see a growing audience there. So folks in Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Eau Claire, Wausau. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Co. Uh, you're the former yeah, Wisconsin Claire, guy. I got all clear, right? It's all clear. Yeah, okay. Wausau, Wausau. And Appleton. Oh, Wausau. See, yes, Wausau. Yeah, Wausau. Sorry. Appleton. We see a lot of people from there. And Wichita, Kansas. A lot of people from Wichita. So shout out to the folks in Wichita. And speaking of Wichita, if you're in passing through the area or you live there, please be sure to stop by the brand new Mochi Nut Donut Shop in Wichita. It is owned by the one and only Matthew Nola, a.k.a. the Pickleball Mochi Donut King now. We interviewed him back in episode 25, along with uh, our other buddy, Noy, the, the other pickleball guy. So stop in, see, say hi to Matthew, get yourself a mochi donut, boba drinks, ice cream. We just wanted to give a shout out. Um, small business owner, getting started there with him and his wife running that shop. So please support him and them. So today we're going to jump into the interview with Grisada. So Grisada, you were born in Laos. Um, kind of interesting because you're, you're a little bit of a latecomer, like all of my family, like my wife's family came in you know, after the 70s, five war ended and, you know, early 80s type of thing. Co was here in 75. Um, but tell us about your immigration from Laos, your early years, where you were born and kind of how you got here and, and you know, your years early growing up in San Diego. Yeah, they, they would call me the um, the 1.5 or closer to age 1.7 or 8 generation. Um, I was born in Laos, uh, Hue Sai, Bokeo, uh, born in 88. Uh, we moved to America when I was less than like two years old. So we moved in at some point in 1989. Um, my aunts and my uncles uh, were refugees. So they, uh, a lot of my mom's side uh, escaped uh, through, through, you know, Dong Kai refugee camp and all the other camps during the war. Um, a, a lot of family stayed behind, but long story short, uh, they, they collected their money. We all gathered our money. Uh, did a one-way ticket over here and never came back kind of thing. So we we did our own little escape, but just not through the uh, so, uh, traditional refugee route. So I got to ask, because we have some family from that same region, and, and they're a Thai Lu in Thai Nua. Are you, are, you, are you guys Thai Lu? Yeah, I'm part Lu. Yep. Okay. Yeah, because that uh, area. Of my family. Okay. That area, I think, has a lot of uh, Lu people, right, up there in the yep. north, uh, by kind of by Myanmar, uh, by by the border of Thailand and all that. So, yeah. So okay. a lot of my family is a uh, loot. So that makes me loot. And then my dad is born uh, in, in, in a village outside of Long Pabang. So oh, okay. he was raised, he was raised in Long Pabang. So I got, I, I always say I rep, uh, I rep Long Pabang and Bokeo equally. <laughs> okay. We have a loot temple. Well, about an hour from us in Rockford. I don't know if you've been there, Co. but, but we've been there for some, Family type things. Um, and things You're talking like about that. the Rockford Temple. There, there's one of the temples in Rockford. Oh, there's another there's a Lu one. Temple. Okay, that, oh, yeah, that, there's that, a Lu Temple, and there's a traditional Lao Temple. Yes, and, yes, uh, that, yeah, that yeah, yeah. So anyway, oh, wow, but that right. is kind of cool yeah. little fun. To fun totally, fact. yeah, totally representing both, uh, both groups. Yeah, and yeah. I could barely speak Lao and understand Lao when I go to the Lu Temple. Or I, I, it's like it's similar. Yeah. You can pick up words, but it's it's different. You know. Yep, yeah. similar and different. That's exactly <laughs> how, how you would describe it. Just different ethnicity. Yeah. Well, tell us about growing up in San Diego. So you landed there, big Lao community. Um, you know, great city. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Big, so, big uh, yeah, it, it, it's um currently I'd say it's the sixth largest um in terms of San Diego. Um, the Wat Lao Buddharam, I believe, was the first uh, uh Buddhist temple that was in in America. I would say or if not, then one of the very earliest. So obviously with a lot of Lao communities, we gravitate towards uh, the temple, right? As both a religious site, but also a community center where we could get the food that we want, get the latest news, get the uh, community, right? Like everyone kind of living together. So I grew yeah. up in Southeast San Diego, uh, Southeast San Diego, mainly Market Street. So we called Wat Lao Budalam, uh, the market temple. That's yeah. the nickname Wat, for it. Wat Market and Wat Skyline, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, growing up, growing up in Southeast, um, a lot of it was just, uh, just discovering the, the nature of the neighborhoods and the hoods. Um, I uh, was learning English and speaking Lao at home, you know, like early on trying to and then trying to figure out who I was as a person and identity, trying to learn my family history yeah. at a very young age, but quite ignorant, uh, to be honest. 
just trying to learn, right? But obviously with uh, our families, we tend to not speak upon those things until folks get older. But I was a skater, man. I, I, I used to love playing in the streets. Um, uh, skateboarding was my main passion. Um, school definitely was not, but um, I, I love learning. I just felt like early on, I struggled a little bit with uh, reading, especially, right? Um, but uh, I eventually fell in love with writing um, and, and physics and whatnot, but we'll get into that later. But growing up in San Diego, um, especially in Southeast, we didn't have much. Um, the struggles were quite uh, apparent. Um, we, we lived in a community that was, you know, quite underserved, um, under-resourced, um, a lot of gangs, a lot of violence, a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, immigrant communities kind of, uh, living together, um, usually peacefully, but oftentimes there's a lot of, um, gang violence in our community, that kind of stuff. But I, I would also say there was a lot of beauty to it as well. Um, and that needs to be highlighted because, uh, I think I grew up learning a lot of lessons, um, you know, creating something from nothing kind of mentality and, and seeing the appreciation of, uh, our, our family love and our community love. So. You, uh, Sabi, you mentioned, you mentioned identity. I mean, was there, uh, one particular way you were leaning? Were you leaning because, because you were so young, um, growing up in the States, did you, you know, uh, see yourself as American or were you still holding on, let's say to, uh, you know, did you have a lot of Laotian friends or who did you predominantly like, who, well, how do you identify and who did you see yourself, you know, hanging out with growing up as a kid? Uh, I say I, I identified with, uh, uh, everything. So it'd be Lao, Lu, American. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason why is because, uh, a large portion of my, uh, a side of my family again was Lu, so I was involved in a lot of the Lu ceremonies, the Lu dances, um, but also in the Lao culture dance. And then the temple at the time, uh, Market Temple, uh, had everybody right at one point, like various uh, peoples of Laos, various ethnicities. Mm-hmm. So I always appreciated that. Um, I always loved representing that. But I also knew early on that uh, I I was um, someone odd. You know, especially in school, because um, my where I grew up was mainly like Lao, Black, Mexican, right? Where I went mm-hmm. to school in elementary school was mainly uh, Filipino, Black, Mexican. So a lot of the Asians that I grew up with were either Lao or or Filipino, if if you want to say Asian Pacific Islander. Yeah, that was like the main that was like the main communities um, that I grew up with. But I learned very early on that you know just just like uh, a lot of stories that people tell, like no one didn't really know what Lao was, right? And the closest thing they could associate was probably Thai. But uh, I, I always said I was Lao, um, and I always had to point on the map where Laos was, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was, I was gonna tell people Lao to just mean Thailand and Vietnam. Right? I mean that's that's a if most people know Thailand and Vietnam, like well we're right in the middle. So yeah, I always say like we're right in between, but we're our own peoples, and I always say I'm Lao, but uh, yeah, like I, I, I think I took a lot from everything, and I was like prideful of who I was uh, yeah. with everything. Cool, cool. Yeah, well, that that's pretty cool. And I mean, you know, the the Filipino community is so big in San Diego, in particular the South yep. end of the county. Like the high school you went to, I believe, at least when I lived there, was mainly Filipino, right? Yep. Um, yep. The largest, probably the largest group. So. Uh, my wife, yep. everywhere we went, people would speak Tagalog to her or, or you know, <laughs> think, think I was a Navy guy. And, and you know, anyway, it's a long story. But. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, big, big Navy communities. I grew up with a lot of them and uh, uh, just, uh, yeah, large yeah. Filipino uh, population yeah. here, which is awesome, too. So. Yeah, it is. They're, they're, they're great people. Um, now, so what, what's, what's really cool, Ko and I were talking about you, you know, you've, you've kind of found this intersection between science, art athleticism and in language you know that not many people have found and these are not things that people tend to go together right you think of the scientist as being in one quadrant and then the artist in another and then kind of the athlete dancer type (laughs) right in another quadrant i mean help us unpack that because it's really unique tell us how you got into all of these disciplines that that are typically thought as opposites 
I, I, I believe it started um, since since I was a kid, uh, quite curious of the world and, and where I was and uh, uh, seeing a lot of the differences and uniqueness of uh, you know my family, community, where I was, what I was learning, what I was struggling with, and what I was trying to unpack. And I think the idea of like believing and seeing that there is a whole world of things that I didn't know uh, really and it, it truly intrigued me. So, uh, for example, like when I got into skating, right? Um, I, I was always I was always using my body, you know, like to express myself, like from trying to copy Bruce Lee, from watching all the Bruce Lee movies, watching Kung Fu movies to skating on, on the streets, trying to do like all the best tricks and challenging people. So like in terms of like bodily movement, even before dancing, I always love to express myself uh, in movement. In language, language was a funny thing to me because uh, again, like early on, because I was speaking multiple or you know at least two languages and and here's here's the catch i was speaking loud with a lu accent so then it was even harder so even now people uh confuse my accent because i don't have the taibung luang accent like my dad does right but so i kind of speak my own language so that was like a struggle there uh in terms of like my own community's language and then in english too where i sucked at reading uh or, or writing and then i was like okay whatever but you know, math was good for me, you know, but I wanted to like conquer these things because I felt like the more I learned, the more I could uh, appreciate and see the world, right? And, and and see the world for what it was. And then with physics, physics was the same thing. Once I started reading books in physics, watching cartoons that showed the, uh, in a funny way, but showed like concepts of physics, I, I just got really intrigued. And uh, I always looked to space as a source of inspiration, like whenever I felt lost or Whenever I felt like um, I needed something to look forward to, I would look up in space because I always thought that you know space was such a vast and wonderful thing. So it, it really stemmed from curiosity, and then from there, it I had to ask myself like, how does this all connect with me, right? Like, how does this truly connect with me? Because I think that all of them give me a sense of feeling alive and give me a sense of understanding. Like, uh, you know, I don't know everything, but I think learning and, and falling in love with different aspects of um, my life made things more connected uh, on a physical and spiritual level. So that's how I kind of was curious about so many things and obsessing myself with it. I, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. You, um, how many siblings do you come from a big family? How many siblings uh, did you have and, and like, where did you land? So growing up, uh, well, my immediate is I have an older sister and a younger brother that I grew up with. And then okay. from my mom's side, the main side of the family that moved over here was uh, my mom's side. But they had um, they had five kids between them, um, I believe. Five, uh, six, um, six, but one one of the families was at, uh, is back in Pokeo, Boisai. But like five came over here with a bunch of cousins. So then that side has a bunch of, uh, we have a huge family that we all grew up with. We all stuck together. So yeah. it wasn't just like my older sister and younger brother. It was like all my cousins. And there's like, I mean, probably like 10, 10 plus. Uh, and we were all around this, you know, like a similar age range, but it spanned like from like 15 years from the youngest to the oldest, I would say. And I was like around the middle. So my immediate family in the larger group well, the, the reason why I ask is like, because you're interested in so many different things, right? How, what type of support or encouragement do you get from your parents, from your siblings? I mean, you, you mentioned like being the oddball, right? And yeah. like, uh, how, how did they like support you or, you know, in, in these all different activities you're doing, you're doing science, you're, you're dancing, um, you're skateboarding and, you know, skateboarding is not a traditional Laotian activity, right? Now, now yeah. like, well, Pat, Pat Chinita, right? Right. John Pat yeah. Chinita's a pro skateboarder, but you usually don't hear about, you know, like most Laotian kids are playing soccer, right? Right. At, right. at a very young age with a group of friends. So here you are kind of doing, you know, uh, the skateboarding, which uh, I'm going to guess that not too many uh, Laotians were doing with you. No. So, uh, that inspiration came from one of my cousins, Holiday. His name is Holiday. He I, he was like in terms of um, 
someone that I looked up to as a bigger brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got me into skating, and then I just got obsessed with it. Uh, and and the thing with skating is, yeah, it costs money to buy a board and some shoes, but that's it. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's it. So then the rest is like you go out there and you better learn something and, and and you train and you practice and that's what I did. And for example, like sports programs, like it was hard for my parents as it was. Like they ran their own businesses and they worked like seven days a week. Uh, even then, trying to make their ends meet, it was like it made no sense to pay for a sports program, mm-hmm. you know. And I didn't want to burden them with that. So I think they were, uh, you know, obviously scared with uh, skateboarding because, you know, broken bones and whatnot. But yeah, um, but that, you know, luckily blessed that that didn't happen. I mean, I fell a lot, but and then like uh, with breaking, it was just like as soon as I got into breaking, I just absolutely fully uh, dedicated myself to it, fell in love with it. And um, it was a path that I took um, that I fell in love with. And then with my little brother, uh, he he also he also started learning because I taught him early on. But also in my neighborhood, uh, they the the people that I grew up in the neighborhood, um, they also kind of looked at me as a big bro. So I kind of uh, wanted to inspire them to you know get their get them off the streets per se, or like get them yeah. get their minds off the uh, the everyday struggles that we grew up on, and and have them focus on a passion. And then my family at first was like, oh, like we didn't really understand it. But I was like, hey, don't worry about that. Because if I hold on to my grades or if I studied good enough or I did what I needed to do, then no one could say anything. Right. And it was I was always like I always had to back myself up before I could uh, uh, give myself permission to to do the things I did. So it was kind of like, all right, well, if I could hold this down, then I definitely can do this and no one could stop me <laughs> because I'm holding, I'm still like yeah, keeping my end. That's so, a, definitely a great, great way to look at it, you know, because, you know, academics is so important to, you know, the, the Laotian parents or the Laotian family, you know, so yeah, I, I can, yeah, I can see where they really couldn't say, you know, much as long as you're keeping your grades. But I, I do see the concern, right, that, you know, especially mothers being concerned about, you know, skateboarding and then falling and then breaking bones and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to play football, but that was a no-no because, you know, that was a no-go <laughs> because it's just, no, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't convince them to let me play football. So I never got to. Yeah. Then I just started to like, just like the things that I loved, you know, like I didn't, I didn't want to follow trends. And I think I, I was, I'm a feely kind of artist too. So if it feels dope to me, if it feels, again, if it feels something like, that I'm alive and doing, then I, I have to jump into it. And that's what I did with like everything I do. Right. Um, my parents too, it was also like, I, uh, you know, they, they're working, they're doing everything they can to support us. But in terms of education too, like I didn't really have anyone to look up to. I didn't, I didn't have that kind of support going into like middle school and, and high school. I, I really had to pick up a lot of things on my own, but I felt like that kind of mindset happened since I was a, a kid anyway. Uh, not that I didn't have help. I'm just saying, like it, it definitely didn't come from um, your your traditional places that you would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how did you get into the breaking? Was it the neighborhood influences, MTV? What 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 kind of drew you to it? So at first, uh, my cousin Stephen, he he was teaching um, my sister, me, and his younger brother um, how to do handstands. It's like, oh, it's break dancing, right? It's break dancing and and uh he would show some stuff and then i would do it as a kid like just trying to i would learn handstands but i never really thought much of it because i was like already heavy into skating as a kid but what happened was uh i would see i wouldn't call it subliminal but they they were just there like when i would go to the mall i would see breaking videos um like really awesome dope breaking videos i was like oh wow so there's still a scene like people are still breaking and then I would still see it more and more. And then um, uh, we didn't have internet back then uh, early on. So what I would do was like, I would skate to Malcolm X library, which is near my mom's shop at the time in Southeast. And when I would go there, I would go up on the internet and, and just type up like breaking, like breakdance, uh, you know, what are some of the moves with some of the vocabulary? And then from there, I started telling my friends, this is already in middle school. I was like, oh, I'm getting interested in like breaking. And then, my buddy, my buddy would uh, let me, uh, he, he would lend me his VHS tapes so I could watch. Cause he was like, Oh, my uncle, my uncle is really dope at breaking. You should watch it. Uh, and, and he, you know, his uncle and his crew definitely was. And then 
then I would buy videos at the mall. And then like, it was just this whole like thing that was converging. Right. And then once I got uh, internet at home, I started downloading videos for myself. And the one thing that absolutely got me hooked was not just the skills, but also the music, the music really got me into falling in love uh, with, with breaking in general. Cause again, back then I used to express myself. I used to love like even listen to Michael Jackson, like, like all his hits and dancing. Or I was like, Oh, Billy do the Michael Jackson stuff, you know, or like do all the, um, whatever. But like, it was, and growing up doing Lao cultural dance as well, like, I think music was always embedded in my, like, upbringing, whether it was, like, rock, rock music, rap music, like, all the genres. And then when Breaking came out with, like, funk music and break beats, and I was like, wow, I can't believe people are, like, dancing like this. This is amazing. And that's how I really fell in love. And that's that's how I really caught on. Um, and then from there, I just couldn't get away from it. I just got obsessed and wanted to train and wanted to learn every move. Uh, asked my dad to buy me VHS te- uh, tapes on how to like how to break uh, tutorials and whatnot. You know, it was all VHS days too. So, and then from there, I, I uh, just taught myself based on watching these videos. And then from there, I taught a lot of people in my my neighborhood. And then we just started practicing in the front yard, and the rest is history. Thank you. VHS well, tape amazing. and a piece of linoleum. That's all you needed, right? <laughs> yeah, we well, literally well, bought well, linoleum well, and, and well, puzzle mats. Yeah, go ahead, no, I'm Tom. sorry, go ahead. No, no, John, I mean, we grew up with uh, breakdancing. It was popular in the, the mid-80s, right? When we were teenagers, right? Yeah. And then it, yeah. like, it, it faded. It, it faded away. And then when I heard it was coming back, or like, like Binley, you're saying, like, early 2000s, right? When, when you were kind of getting into yeah. it, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I was surprised to hear, like, breakdance is coming back. Yeah. yeah I, I remember, yeah. I remember as a... As a kid, you know, the music, the clothes that they wore, you know, everybody had mm-hmm. a certain Everybody, they'd go something, you know, that was being a thing called cardboard. You know? Yeah, 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 cardboard. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, was, so, yeah, the 80s was when um, it really went mainstream with breaking. So, like, breaking was a was a cultural thing um, uh, in, in New York and in the 70s, and it kind of grew, grew, grew. And then the 80s was when it really exploded to, you know, the world with all the movies. Mm-hmm. And then I was really inspired by a lot of stuff happening in the eighties and then nineties in San Diego, uh, the nineties in San Diego was a, a really heavy, like, uh, gang- gangster era, you know? Yep. So a lot of the youth were like in whatever sets they were in, not everybody, but if it wasn't gangs, it was in racing culture. People were just into like import cars. So like there was already fads and trends happening and, and things going on. So even in the nineties breaking, in particularly in San Diego, if you weren't already involved in the scene, there was already heavy stuff in San Diego in the eighties and nineties were breaking, but I didn't know. Right. So everyone in my area was like, dude, breaking's dead. (laughs) They're like, what are you doing? Like, even with me, like when I started like early two thousands, right. So it was always like, Oh, breaking's dead, breaking's dead, breaking's dead. But sure enough, here it is. It's about to be in the Olympics next year. So. Oh, really? 24. Yeah. Well, t- tell us, tell us more about that. Tell, what, what do you, what do you, what have you heard? So it's, it, it will officially be part of the uh, 2024 Olympics, like the Olympics in wow. Paris. Um, there's a, a, a lot of organizations globally that are working with different committees and, and uh, really working to legitimize the competition aspect of breaking. And it first happened at the Youth Olympics, uh, Youth Olympics Games in Buenos Aires, I believe. If if I recall correctly, it was a uh, 2018 when they did the Youth Olympics, uh, and they incorporated breaking as kind of like a, kind of like a test. Like if it's successful here, we could really implement a system for um, breaking in the Olympic Olympics. So uh, it, it's a long process, and the first year this is going to happen is uh, next year, uh, and there's a lot of um, organizations involved, a lot of committees, a lot of qualifiers, especially this year, because it's 2023 this year, everyone's going to try to figure out ways to do qualifiers for it. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to see that you know, it made it its way to the Olympics. Uh, is that is that something you would, I mean, are you still active as far as competition? Or is this I, you know, like, there's something that you would like to pursue? I was contemplating that in terms of competition um but i would really need to like 
for me to make my heart feel satisfied about comp- competing like that, I'd have to drop everything. Like, yeah, and just fully focus on being a, a b boy at this point, uh, which is quite yeah. difficult. Yeah. I've seen like, your resume. I've seen your resume. It's like you want everything else. You know, this would be kind of be yeah. like uh, uh, the what is it the the tapping or what's that saying, John? Icing uh, on the cake. Icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to be realistic with myself too that um, there are a lot of uh, active competitors in the U.S. where we're a really strong scene. There's a lot of solid dancers, um, uh, a lot of them younger than me, and um, a lot of them completely focused on this. And I feel like um, I would love to be involved uh, in some way or another. But I'm also happy if it just happens, like, and I, I and I could just watch it. Because yeah. to be to be real with myself, even for the past three years with the pandemic, you know, like I really had to sit down and ask myself, like, you know, I've I've done like this is I've been dancing for twenty one years, uh, like wow. training consistently, training, competing, traveling, performing everywhere uh, around the world, and you know, um, with the pandemic when it put stuff in a pause, I had to say like, all right, well what is it that I really want to do now? Like I've done all the competitions, right. As much as I can, and I'm still competing, but to do like the, the pro breaking tour circuits and to do like, let's say the Olympic qualifiers. Now it's another level of dedication. Uh, and what I mean that, I mean, it's like, you know, you might as well, you should be dropping your job <laughs> and training. Yeah. Uh, Cause like we train a lot of these dancers train, uh, we train in unique ways, but it's it's athlete stuff too, you know. Like we're we're really push, pushing our our physical uh, limits of our bodies, yeah. but also trying to be creative and do original movement in in the art aspect. So it's like art and athleticism, and to be at that level, you got you got to truly dedicate. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, is there a breaking culture in Laos that you know of? Yep. Would, okay. Um, We'll, we'll talk we'll talk offline because we kind of have a program we're working on with them to develop a lot of sports and bring a lot of athletes to various games and awesome. developing a developing a Lao team uh, helping them get up to speed is is something that uh, possibly would be more more realistic in the cards for you they could oh you know, yeah 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 I I, uh, I totally uh, love to give back to the scene out there um I've I've judged competitions out there uh, taught workshops uh, connected with the the leaders in the community too. Um, yeah. Funny enough, I, I, um, it's not set in stone, but I plan on being in Vietnam in March to compete. And uh, I, I haven't hit them up yet, but I want to do a Lao team um, because it's a Southeast Asian. It's like a big competition over there. So I was like, hey, we did a Lao team here in the states, like, but I, we never done one in Southeast Asia. I think that'd be really yeah. awesome. Or like having like a Lao American and a Lao like you know, connect yeah. like that and then compete in Southeast Asia. I think that hasn't happened before. Yeah. But so yeah, we'll there's work, a healthy yeah. scene out there. Yeah. So for the SEA Games, we're bringing a contingent of Lao American athletes to compete along with the Lao national team from Laos. So nice, it's, nice. it's really, really exciting time. A lot of really cool stuff that, that we have going on there. But, you know, the sport, how I watch it, everybody looks good. How do you kind of know who won? What are the criteria? What, what, How's it judged? So uh, there's a lot of different eras of judging, and then there's a lot of different uh, uh, styles of judging. And I'm laughing because uh, I think this is where there are challenges with uh, art as subjectivity and how do we legitimize it for competition, right? So so he was a bodybuilder, so he knows subjective sports well, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, see, and respect to you, dude, because like, see, you. You know, you joined something that was quite unconventional too in what you did. Yeah, well, bodybuilding, man. Especially at that time, <laughs> for sure. So I just got to highlight that too. Too many buddy doing it. So and ain't nobody. I, yeah, barely. So I I got a lot of heat. Like I got a lot of heat, like from my family, right? Like for especially from you know, and I've mentioned this before. Like you know, like from my mother, right? And I. Look back, and it's like, man, like how different could it have been if I'd gotten a little bit more support, right? But mm-hmm. I understand, you know, why she thought the way she thought because, you know, it's never been done. Like, sure, you, you sure. know, one, you're you're small in stature, right? And like, 
there was no Asian bodybuilders. There weren't there weren't any Asian bodybuilding heroes that I looked up that could look up to at that time. So it was right. hard. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was like, okay, <laughs> it's like yeah, man, he's yeah. I'm five foot four, five foot five. He's six foot four. You yeah. know, so and, and, and yeah. Yeah. being a pioneer is always going to be tough because you don't have that kind of person or, or someone in your community to look up to. So yeah. it, it is a tough thing, but it's definitely something that uh, should be celebrated. Um, but yeah, Ho so hopefully, hopefully I can be that to the, you know, to the new, newer generation of kids working out like body, like bodybuilding. Yeah. Talk about like Laos, like bodybuilding is big in Laos now, you know, women are okay. getting into it, right. Women are training, working out. When I was doing yeah. it, they would say, oh, man, you're gross. You know, the women, hate they were disgusted by me, you know, when, yeah. when I had first started working out. And now, like, man, women are competing. And we have a few, uh, we have a, a few Lao American or Lao Canadian women that are professional, you know, the same in, in the same organization that I turned professional. So it's, and yeah, yeah so it's, it's definitely, it's growing. Awesome. Yeah, sorry. Uh. Going back to the judging thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, so my bad. Um, so for the judging, um, so if you're if you're really practiced in, in breaking, you you have to understand uh, there there are different categories, um, but not every judging criteria is the same. But I, I will just break it down. Like, um, you know, you have your foundation, right? What is the foundation of breaking? You know, you have your top rock. So dancing on top. Are you musical? Uh, do you understand the music and are you dancing to the music rhythmically and, and do you understand uh, how to freestyle with, with the music up top? Then you have your footwork. So footwork is pretty much the DNA of breaking. I know people see power moves, um, the dynamics, all the incredible stuff, which, which is amazing. And it is definitely part of breaking an integral part of breaking, but footwork is what really truly separates the dance from from a lot of other dances, like the patterns uh, uh, and, and all the intricacies of footwork is very important and was one of the first things we did as, as, as breakers. So top rock footwork, that's foundation. Understanding freezes, how to hold your freezes, creating different shapes and patterns. And then you have your dynamics, which is uh, the power moves and all the amazing stuff. So that's like the general thing, but it gets breaking down even more to even more intricate. Uh, ideas and details but a lot of times this is the part where i go back to our part a lot of times um and, and then there's this originality aspect which can truly be taken to uh different contexts right some people break foundation and they want to go completely abstract but the cool thing is like that's what i love about breaking you express yourself and if you really feel like you that's what it is and that's what it is but when you judge when you judge you often have let's say three judges at a competition let's say three for the more local or like some of the bigger jams, you have three judges and they're just going to pick based on understanding this criteria, understanding the dance, understanding, you know, who's cleaner, who looks stronger, who didn't crash, um, who had the more powerful, solid rounds, technical rounds, who had the better moments. Uh, the judges will just say, you know, judges three, two, one, they'll point towards the side, right? That was oftentimes how it happened. So three judges would choose either it'll be a tie or a two-to-one decision or a unanimous. And then uh, there were so many battles in the history of breaking where people felt like they got robbed. Oftentimes, rightfully so, just like boxing or bodybuilding, there's other, yes. yeah. you know, like close, heavy decisions. And oftentimes it was like the judge's call. So sometimes people come like, hey, why did I lose? And then every judge would have a different explanation as to what they were looking for. And what they valued too, that's, that's the important part, what they valued in judging, um, which often leads to uh, a lot of frustration in the scene, right? A lot of frustration in terms mm -hmm. of the competition where people travel a lot, maybe the money's high, or maybe people sacrifice a lot to go to this event. And then they battle, they felt like they won. And then maybe the judges went the other way. That's happened to me a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but, you know, in to be honest, too, I'm sure a lot of people felt the same way when I beat them in a battle and they were and they were close, heated battles and they felt like they won. So it's yeah. like, I understand. But now, given the fact that uh, I'm saying with the way the direction is moving, especially for the Olympics, uh, which still will have this level of subjectivity. Now, there are there, there were judging systems in the past that try to quantify certain categories. 
Uh, some of them failed, some of them did better than others. But I think now there's like a unified system that is geared towards the Olympics. And in that, we'll have uh, judges who are trained and, and certified to be judges. So my little brother, he, he got certified to do this judging uh, system. And I believe they will use that for the Olympics. And what that does is it gives you transparency. So you can give values, but you could also give reasons why. And judges are trained are trained to look at certain things to know and understand what is actually being valued here, right? And then they would do case studies and they would look at battles where um, maybe your heart said like this person won, but if you had to use the judging criteria, you would have to say that this person won due to X, Y, Z, right? So not everything is quantified, but to legitimize it even more, um, they, they are going towards that route to have a lot more objectivity and a lot more judges trained in it. So not just like uh, another big problem is like sometimes you have your superstar B-boys or B-girls and they're, they're, they're headlining judges because everyone wants to see them and they're a judge, but maybe they're whack judges or maybe they're not even paying attention. You know, like there was a lot of that that was happening. So it's like kind of cleaning up. If I, I still believe that we are an art, you know, uh, breaking is an art because dance is beautiful. It's, it's, not just battles and competitions, it's a culture, but if we want to grow the competition, these are the things we have to do. Otherwise, the audience is going to look and watch like, how did this person, like just how you asked John, like how does this person uh, win? But like, you know, but now, now it's like, no, here's the documented things. So it's happening and it's growing for sure. Oh, and it's legitimizing. Kind of like, it's kind of like gymnastics, right? The, the, the performance routine. There's, re, the re, there's the required moves that you got to do, and then, then you're judged on creativity and originality and, mm -hmm. you know, stuff, stuff like that. So, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, Ice skating, yeah. gymnastics. All, it, yeah. It's been done yeah. before in the Olympics, so they could yeah. do it. It's just probably getting the whole world on the same page, having standards, right, having qualified judges, you know. And so I assume it'll be an exhibition sport this time. Is that what it'll be? exhibition sport they usually have exhibition sports the olympics like the first time they don't award medals you go and it's it's they call it an exhibition sport like skating oh. was that before it became skating i don't know where they're at with break dancing if it's mm. a full-on sport with medals or if it's going to be an exhibition sport but i should look way. that up but i yeah i believe it it will be medaled. okay um, yeah i believe That's it will awesome. be a medal yeah. uh, but well, yeah so the the cool thing too is like with with the way breaking is going to be in the Olympics. Um, so I've, I've trained a lot with uh, gymnasts uh, uh, at, at my time at Cal, like with the Cal team and uh, the club team members. And I asked them like, cause I wanted to know about judging too. Like how do they judge? Right. And um, they have to do a preset routine and they have to let the judges know the, the skills and the moves that they're doing beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then they have to perform it. And then they, um, and then there's this other selection criteria process. So you actually get docked, uh, not only for being out of bounds, but if you do stuff outside of the, the routine that you said you was going to do, the judges can't judge on it. So you get penalized, right? Ah. Yeah. Mm. So the cool thing with breaking though, is we're battling and the judges have to look at everything. So it's going to be very active. It's going to be quite active. Um, and I believe it's singles. So uh, it's going to be one-on-one. -on -one. So there's going to be a men, men's one-on-one uh, -on -one solo battle, and then it's going to be a women's one-on-one. -on -one. So there's not going to be crew yet. Um, they, they wanted to do the solos first uh, uh, because I think a crew thing is going to be way too, too much to get ready for uh, in yeah. terms of putting it into the, into the Olympics. So it'll be one-on-one -on -one yeah, and round-robin style, I believe, up, up until like the top eight or semis. I, I don't know how, I, I don't know too much, but you'll eventually see a bunch of like uh, solo interesting solo battles. So, yeah. So what were some, what have some of your biggest accomplishments in break dancing? And since your brother was part of your crew for a while, you know, let's give him a shout out and some of his biggest accomplishments as well. Um, were you on honestly, America's got talent? We did America's got talent yeah. with uh, one of our, uh, like I thought. Uh, crews, like friend, friend crew, San Diego, uh, collaborations called Body Poets. So I was in America's Got Talent. Um, my brother and I did Jabba Walkies uh, for, uh, he did it longer than me, but I did it for a year. So dancing out in Vegas. Um, yep. 
because uh, a lot of the Jabawakis, well, they're, they formed in San Diego, actually, but they're from different parts of, of uh, Cali, mainly. But they had a show in Vegas, and then um, we, we auditioned because uh, some of those uh, dancers are, are from San Diego. So we had that connection there, and we, we went out there and auditioned. Like, I quit my job to do it. I think that was a beautiful time. But when... Um, How long did you do when, that for? Uh, I did it for a year. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did it for a year. Um, but in terms of breaking, breaking, this is where I'll list out like, you know, uh, winning style elements anniversary. Style elements is one of the biggest, most historic crews on the planet, but they, uh, they started from Central Cali. Um, so they're, they're a California crew. They, they blew up in the 90s. They're part of the, they, we call it like the golden era, the 90s era mm. for like originality and West Coast style. Uh, I, winning their anniversary was a big achievement. Uh, I would say for me, because like, I respect that crew so much, you know, uh, another one is I won a solo competition for, uh, uh, R16 USA qualifiers. So R16 was a really big competition, um, that took place in Korea, but I won the USA qualifier, um, competing, competing in a Red Bull BC one, uh, twice. Yeah. Twice. I just, uh, I didn't, I didn't do so good, but I competed with the top of the top in the States, um, being part of top 16. Um, the furthest I went was semifinals, uh, in San Diego. That was really dope. Um, and then there, there's so many competitions in between that, uh, so many in the Bay area when I was up there at the time, even winning stuff in LA and San Diego, uh, it, it's hard to pinpoint accomplishments because I don't want to just uh, list out battles. I think the impact is quite important too. So like, and and when I say all these competitions, my little brother was definitely part of a lot of those things, like winning style elements. We we competed at Battle of the Year USA qualifier, creating, doing shows and performing even um, not just here, but uh, you know many cities, uh, especially for Lao community events as well. Mm. I think the impact that uh, the, that my brother and I had in San Diego and, and uh, to our contemporaries in the scene, but also the impact that we had just even now is something that I cherish um, because I'm quite prideful of where I come from, um, not only as a Lao American, but as a San Diegan, you know, uh, always, always love representing. So I, I, looking back at my career, I'm just, I'm proud of a lot of things. Obviously, I think I'm quite hard on myself. So every time I lose, I, you know, it, it, it irks me and I want to train harder and et cetera, et cetera. I just love this dance, man. Like, I love the music. I love moving to the music and, and inspiring others and expressing language through, through body movement, you know? So. Uh, I, well, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen your videos, man. I mean, it's like, and I don't follow. I, I don't really follow it, but there's just something unique about your, your your style, right? You can look, it's, I mean, it's like having a physique, right? There's tons of bodybuilders, right? But when you see a guy stand out, like, you know, like you just know, and uh, you, you definitely stood out, man, so. Oh, th yeah. thanks a lot. That means a lot to me because I do, I, I do uh, try to emphasize originality and being creative, but I try to do it coming from within, like trying to find the things that I want to do and try not to copy others. So if, if a person that doesn't follow or study this thing says that too, it's those, it's almost like, dang, like I'm happy I did my job, you know, like, yeah, no, or I'm happy I, I did that. Cause oh, I, just like, some of the things you're physically doing was just like, man, that's crazy. You know, like the strength that uh, required you to do that movement. I was like, man, like John, John, you've seen some of his videos, right? You've oh yeah. Some... yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. So thanks, thanks know, a lot. It means a lot. What what is it like to work on a Vegas show? Because for the audience out there, Jabba Watches has had, had they may still have it. They had a standing show in Vegas. Like you're in Vegas gambling, you go see the show at night. What's it like to be on the cast of one of those shows? Yeah, it was an honor. Um, they they perform now. Uh, they're still performing in Vegas uh, at the MGM. They they have a different show. They they always have to cycle the yeah. shows right through new music and, and new trends. Uh, but I would say, how do I put it? Um, being, having my moments on stage 
whether I did solos or I did, I was part of like highlights of a routine, being on that stage and performing and all that energy and excitement, like you can't, you just can't take that away. You can't even quantify it. It, it was, a, it was so tough on the body because the show that we did was a dancer show, which means that we were all dancers passionate about the dance and all aspects, not just breaking, just like different forms of dance. And just really putting in that passion, which is awesome, but uh, not sustainable, I would say. So mm. it's tough on the body. Yeah. It's like, it, it is absolutely tough, especially when you're doing like multiple shows every week at the highest caliber. Um, and again, it was a dancer's show, which means like you, we put it all, you know, we put in our all like every week. And I'm not saying that they don't do it now. But what I'm saying is uh, a lot of people got injured, right? Because it's just, mm. it's just super high level. So then now um, learning to embrace the show's aspects and a better production is actually really good too. More sustainable for the body. You still have really dope, amazing highlight moments, uh, but you're not straining the body. So longevity is key. And yeah. throughout that year that I did it, it was, it was, it was amazing. Just living in Vegas was, was awesome too. Um, I knew I knew that I needed to go back uh, home, like personally, but I gave it my all. Uh, the excitement, the even your loved ones and people, friends, family coming to see you, uh, just getting the crowd and even celebrities watching you and like the rush uh, on stage is amazing. And then uh, then you have to appreciate all the the tough grind physically to do the rehearsals to be backstage, you know, with your fellow dancers and they're all going through the same things. Um, it, it was a, definitely a journey. It was, it was tough, but rewarding when you felt the energy of the crowd, you know, on yeah. stage. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So, so, you know, that's not exactly something you'd think a astrophysicist would do. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. so step back. Right? So you went to Berkeley, got a degree in physics and astrophysics. Tell us about that. And kind of what you, what excited you about that field and what you're doing in that field with that? Yeah. Uh, so when I, I was watching a lot of like old Looney Tunes cartoons, um, one episode of Foghorn Leghorn, it was a really cool episode about this. Um, uh, well, the, there was like this little chick that had to be babysat, right? But that chick um, knew <laughs> physics. So was it Foghorn Leghorn? I don't know who the rooster dude is, <clears throat> his name, but he was trying to teach this boy how to be a boy, right? So it's like, here, let's, I'm going to teach you how to swing a bat. Or like, and then this chick would like, you would see physically like write math equations and physics concepts, look at it, yeah. and then like swing the bat and then like, you know, like the, the speed of a comet going through his stomach. And I was like, oh. And then another one was about like quantum mechanics and like, um, you know, the whole Schrodinger's cat, like you don't know where. Um, like a, a particle could be there, but it probably isn't there. Like you, there's a probability that there is and different dimensions, uh, multi-dimensions and stuff. So in that same episode, like they're playing hide and seek, but this chick was like uh, hiding in a tree. You go to the tree, you end up in a trash can. He goes to the trash can, ends up in under a hole in the floor, right? And I was like, there, there's a science that does this or there's a science that, you know, uh, speaks upon this. I, I got really intrigued on top of, Again, looking at space and always falling in love with like the stars and the galaxies and the cosmos, right? And then I read a book called uh, Multidimensions uh, by Michio Kaku in high school. And I think that book solidified my interest in theoretical physics. And then um, again, when I grew up, I, I, didn't, I didn't know where to go for college. Uh, I just knew like the default would have been UCSD or San Diego State because I'm from there, right? Or I'm from here. So they're like, oh, these are really good colleges. I didn't really know much about Berkeley. Um, and then until people started saying, oh, that's at the time the number one public university um, in the world. I was like, I don't, I don't know, but, but let's just apply, you know? So I had a buddy help me apply. Uh, long story short, I got into to Cal um, after being rejected from many different places. So it wasn't just like I got accepted into everything, but um, I'm thankful because one thing that got me um, hesitant about going to Cal was because, you know, at the time I'm 17, 18, right? Uh, never left out, never moved out, right? I mean, I traveled, but I never moved out. 
But the one thing I asked was, I was like, am I still going to be able to dance? Because I really cared about it. I was like, am I, is there a scene up there? Is there, can I still break? Because I don't want it to study. I, I'm not, I still don't think I'm a, like a student by, like a, I'm not that studious. You know? I don't even think I'm that smart. I just, uh, especially going to Berkeley, you, feel, you definitely feel that way, or I did, right? I felt so dumb. But my buddy gave me a, a phone call. It was like a two, two and a half hour phone call about the scene in the Bay Area. He, he's from San Diego. Uh, his name is Rock Bandit. And, and he told me about the scene up there. And it, it intrigued me so much. I was like, well, you know, I'm accepted. I'm going to go. And this is my ticket to be independent and to live my life in the Bay Area, see the historic scene up there because it was so historic. It's just that at the time, I didn't really know who was who, you know. Um, and then I always wanted to do astrophysics. So going back to the degree, right? I was like, I want to do astrophysics. Um, I had a partner in crime uh, since freshman year, and he also wanted to do astrophysics. And we were kind of, again, certain oddballs. Like I felt like uh, we connected on a different level. So we would always study together, do problems together, uh, chat and hang out together too. So he was like my partner in crime in physics. What, long story short, he, we were so into astrophysics, but we were doing like our undergrad and we had a, we had a choice to make for, uh, for upper division. And he was like, Hey, look, we could do a double major in physics. We just have to do another lab course and uh, like a few extra classes. And then I was like, you know what? Let's do it, man. Like we got each other, you know, like, um, yeah, so then we agreed to do the double major, and then we definitely helped each other along the way. His name is Nick Kleshnik. And uh, uh, long story short, we graduated with a double major, uh, holding like holding it down for each other. So like some days I would be too sleepy. Like, hey, dog, like go to the lecture. I'll copy your notes. And then other days he'd be like, hey, I can't go. I'll copy your notes later. And we'd study together, you know, work together, right? I mean, you can't copy each other's exams. So we, we just work together in terms of doing uh, solving all our problems together and, and pushing each other, motivating each other. I think, I think I was, we were both blessed to have that. Um, and then throughout that part of my life, um, I also did creative writing, a minor in creative writing, which is how I fell in love with poetry. Uh, I would have done a triple major if I could, but I couldn't because there was no major for, uh, for, uh, creative writing and poetry. I only had a minor. So I left Cal like that. Um, What's the result of that? Currently, I'm an optical engineer. I work at a biotech company in San Diego uh, in, in research and development. I help develop and um, design optical systems, both in illumination and imaging for DNA sequences. So uh, anything from figuring out the concept, the optical system architecture, to uh, pushing it into a prototype, uh, doing the test, the characterization, defining the specs, designing, vendor management, and then pushing it into a product that is being, um, or I, I, I designed and helped develop a, a few products on the market. Um, but yeah, it's all, it's all in the biotech space. Uh, the physics helped me because I understood it. Uh, uh, once you could speak in physics terms, like not, not, not crazy deep, but just like once you could speak in, let's say like, you know, wavelengths and light rays and power output and you know optical focal length and this and that it's like okay i could understand it like i i wasn't an optical engineer by by uh college it was all mainly theoretical at that time so that's yeah that's and that, that's what that's how i used it uh, that's how i'm using it to this day maybe not astrophysics but astrophysics was like my first love you know like no one told me to do it i just kind of fell in love with it so it, yeah. yeah, unless you're Michio Kaku, it's hard to make money in astrophysics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I felt like to do like grad school, a lot of astrophysics was like programming and, and you know, hours of coding just to collect data yep. and then make inferences on that. You have to really love it. <laughs> so, folks, we've got a lot to unpack with, with this episode. So we're going to take a break, pick up where we left off with Crusada next week. In part two of this interview, we'll dig deeper into the artistic side and explore his poetry writing. If you're enjoying the show, do us a favor and subscribe on all platforms, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and more. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple and Spotify and tell your friends and family about the show. We'd really appreciate that. 
Um, with that said, if you'd like to get involved with what we're doing here at the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame, send us a message. Um, the response from the community has been overwhelming, and we could really use some help with researching different athletes, um, identifying podcast guests, writing the stories, video editing, graphic design, you name it, we could use the support. So look forward to hearing from you. Please reach out if you'd love to get involved. Until next week. The C4 Podcast is brought to you by the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame. Visit us on the web at laoamericansports.com, celebrating the first, inspiring the next.